You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 4th of December. And we were broadcasting live from the fifth day of COP28. We were live on location at the conference at Expo City. And as you can imagine, we had quite a big focus on the climate change talks on the programme today. It was a weekend of protests and pledges. CNN climate correspondent David McKenzie brought us up to speed on whether progress is being made. Meanwhile, for the first time, talks here were focusing on the impact of global warming on health. Renowned expert Dr. Monique Wasuna from the Drugs for Neglected Disease Initiative joined us to explain why those talks are life-changing. And one of the world's foremost tunnelling experts, Professor Arnold Dix, told us how he helped to free the Indian workers who were trapped underground for 17 days. Meanwhile, as Dubai announced plans to build one of the world's largest marine reef developments, we discussed the importance of coral with the chief reef officer of the Earthshot prize-winning company, Coral Vita. And UAE-based charity Dubai Cares is bringing together 200 experts at COP28 to discuss how to teach children the skills they'll need for the future climate economy. The CEO, His Excellence Dr. Tariq Al-Gurg, joined us on the programme. And we also got all the latest sports headlines with our sports editor, Chris McCarty. From Expo City, Dubai. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at COP28. The world's largest climate conference. Welcome back to the program. We are coming to you live from COP28, right in the middle of the conference at Expo City. And my goodness me, it has been a weekend of high drama and big deals right here at the UN's Climate Change Conference. We've heard pledges on climate finance, uh, food systems, cutting coal and tripling renewable energy capacity. We'll have more on that one in a second. Meanwhile, 50 oil and gas companies promised to cut CO2 and methane and global donors pledged nearly $780 million to defeat neglected tropical diseases. Plus, tens of thousands of philanthropists, business people and the public descended on the green zone to participate and make their own pledges. Were you one of those residents who made it down to the green zone over the weekend? If so, I'd love to hear how you found it. Do get in touch, 4001, or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 So we've had lots of talk, we've had a fair amount of action and some big, big numbers being bandied around. But is it enough. Well, I am delighted to say the award-winning CNN correspondent David McKenzie has joined us here in our studio to run us through everything that has happened so far. Now, David, you're normally uh, based in Joburg, but you are based here in Dubai now for COP28. Uh, as we've just spoken about over the weekend, the oil companies announced their agreement to reduce methane emissions. That must be being seen as a, as a positive step. It's definitely a positive step and great to meet you, Georgia. You know, This COP is all about having real, tangible results because of this climate crisis. And I think it's important that uh, corporates also get involved. At least 50 oil companies saying they're going to reduce the levels of methane. Now, I don't know if anyone's been driving around and you see an oil production facility, you see those flares coming out of the top of those production, that is often giving off a great deal of methane. Now, methane is far more powerful as a greenhouse gas 
than carbon dioxide. We don't talk about it as much, but this announcement is positive, see many. Some activists are saying it's not enough. Also over the weekend, the US government announcing that they are going to strengthen their rules and regulations for the uh, methane of the oil and gas in, uh, industry in that country. It's all pushing towards looking at all the different aspects of the emissions that go into the atmosphere to uh, impact climate change. Would some activists suggest that this focus on CO2 and methane emissions is a distraction, that what the oil and gas companies really ought to be doing is saying they're going to roll back on their production? That is a very, very good point, and I've heard that time and time again here in the COP28, because you can nibble around the edges, you can even take big chunks around the edges, but what many are saying is you have to actually go for the core issue, which is our addiction to fossil fuels. Now, there is hope by the end of this COP there will be some kind of announcement with concrete timelines on how to phase out the use of fossil fuels, particularly coal and then oil and gas into the future. But to do that and the, uh, to have a consensus on that is incredibly difficult. Now, that chimes in with the negotiations that are going on now. Most of the world leaders have, found net, have now left, but uh, remaining are the delegates who are engaged with these what are called consensus-based negotiations around the global stock take. Now, there's a lot of jargon in that sentence. What does that actually mean? What's going on? Well, you know, single words can have a big impact and phase out versus phase down or some other kind of thing, which just sounds like gobbledygook if you're just listening to it. But honestly, those two things are very different from each other. Do you ease off for the use of fossil fuels or do you stop the use of fossil fuels? Do you put a timeline on it? Does, does it have a hard out, as it were? And, you know, I know as the audience members, you're thinking, oh, my word, phase out, phase down, uh, this and that. It doesn't sound particularly practical, but, you know, the world is warming at an alarming rate. The decisions that are made here at the COP hosted by the UAE are incredibly important if they are enforceable, and it could have very real-world implications on people living here and across the planet. Can we talk about the, the success stories that we've had already here? Uh, the much-fated loss and damage fund that was announced a couple of days ago. When, it, when that announcement came out on Friday, there was a real sense of progress being made. Are we seeing momentum? Is that momentum? Well, right off the bat, on the very first day, you had this announcement. And for those of us who live in the developing world, this is very significant. Because just look at the last few years. Floods in Pakistan, the, the drought in Somalia and the Horn of Africa... You know, again, I have to keep going back to these are not theoretical issues. These are issues that are impacting individuals around the world every day uh, across the world. This loss and damage fund is a fund to allow richer nations like the UAE, like the US and the EU group of countries to put money in to help those countries that don't have the money to help their citizens deal with this climate catastrophe. So it's super important. The last COP I was at in Egypt, they finally agreed to actually start this fund. Several countries, including the US, had to kind of be dragged over the line, though they wouldn't uh, say that's how it happened. Uh, and now you have this actually happening. Initially, it will be administered by the World Bank, and millions of dollars have been put in to help countries. It is still just a drop in a bucket. And it also is... Not a side issue, but it, it is not the fundamental problem we're facing, which is a warming planet. So that fundamental issue, is that what's being discussed at the moment in the consensus negotiations? Now, I remember everyone is describing this COP as a really important COP because of the global stock take. It's considered a sort of... Um, 
it, it's the second most important one after Paris, for example, where countries genuinely agreed to reduce their carbon emissions. Is that the type of statement that we're looking for in a week's time here? I think it is a type of statement many are looking for. And, you know, stock take again, loss and damage, you know, your eyes glaze over when you hear these topics, but a stock take is basically like a report card. Now think of when you were in school and you got a report card. If you got an F, you wouldn't be too happy with that. And I think, unfortunately, that what the stock take is showing, that countries are far behind globally in reducing emissions to actually have an impact on climate change and the climate crisis. This is an opportunity at this COP to actually look at that report card and decide what you want to do with it. Are you going to study harder? Or in this case, are you going to actually make actionable emissions cuts and figure out a way? You know, sometimes people think of these decisions as the rich world versus the developing world. I know several governments in the African nations where they want to exploit their oil reserves because they see countries like the UAE or territories uh, who have made their billions through it, and they should also have a chance. So these are complicated discussions. Yes, I think what needs to happen, say many, is to have a concrete plan at the end of this COP, which actually does that. Do you sense, I mean, obviously, you mostly are based in in South Africa, but you've spent decades working across the news in, in various different jurisdictions, various different countries. You've covered lots of different COPs before. Does this one feel any different to the others? Does it feel like there's um, this this urge for action, this urge for positive change? Well, I certainly hope so. And I think what's changed is the context that we're living in, not necessarily the urgency of the action, because we are living in the climate crisis. You just have to look out your front door and see that the world is getting warmer. In southern Africa, where I'm based, it will be impacted with some of the most severe temperature rises. There are areas of that part of the world where farmers will no longer be able to farm uh, the staple crop. Other parts of the world will be inundated by flooding. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to engage with this topic because it feels so awful and so all-encompassing. But I think if you drill down from what seems like terrible headlines is that things can be done. And that's why all these world leaders and tens of thousands of people streaming around this uh, zone are, are trying to negotiate with some kind of solution. Absolute pleasure to have you join us in the studio, David. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. David is the award-winning CNN correspondent based normally in Joburg. But uh, lots of journalists, lots of very important journalists have come here uh, for this specific event. And, And it's a great pleasure to have David join us on the agenda this morning. From Expo City Dubai. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at COP28. The world's largest climate conference. Yes, welcome back to The Agenda. Coming to you, as they just said, coming live from COP28. We're here at Expo City. We're in the blue zone. Uh, It is very, very busy here. I have to say, I arrived at about 8 a.m. That was too late. (laughs) There was a queue. I mean, it was incredibly well organized, uh, but I put a picture up on social media at Dubai 1038 FM. Incredibly well organized, incredibly well structured, but literally thousands of people arriving on site here. And uh, the latest figures from the UN suggest that 80,000 people have registered to come to the COP28 talks, either in the blue zone or the green zone. And the green zone is more for sort of businesses and for the public. The blue zone tends to be more for governmental delegates. Yeah, it is uh, definitely feels like the center of the universe right now. 
now if you come down here. Obviously, when you're outside the COP28 environment, it might feel like it's not the top news story. Uh, but honestly, decisions that are being made here are going to have uh, repercussions through all of our lives for many decades to come. And in fact, there was a groundbreaking announcement made here on site in, I suppose, in the last 12 hours or so, because global donors have now pledged $777 million to defeat neglected tropical diseases. Now, as part of that pact, the UAE's president, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan, along with the Gates Foundation, which is run by Bill and Melinda Gates, um, also other global partners are involved as well. They all increased their Reaching the Last Mile Fund, which focuses on these neglected diseases from $100 million to $500 million. Now, this all happened on the first day ever that the COP talks focused on the fundamental threat that climate change presents to human health. Joining me now to discuss the realities of that threat and that massive donation is Dr. Monique Wasuna. She is the director of the Africa Regional Office for Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative. Doctor, uh, lovely to have you join us on the line. Thank you so much for your time. $500 million, it sounds like a lot. Is it enough? Now, I am not getting my guest on air. Oh, oh, there you are. Maybe I can hear yeah. you now. There you are. Thank you. Can, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so is so, 500 million enough? 500 million uh, is not enough, but it's a good beginning uh, because the um, this whole area of funding is neglected. And so this is really a nice beginning. So I think if we pull together, we could be able to get a bit more. What is the threat that we are facing in the world from a health perspective? Because obviously this money is for the specific neglected tropical diseases. But as I just mentioned, COP28 yesterday focused on health. Why is there this link between global warming and human health? First of all, I'd like to uh, thank the uh, president of the UEA and the entire government for the successful uh, COP28 and the uh, and the first time ever having, as you said, a health day on the sidelines of COP28. The world is really having a, a climate crisis. Um, and climate crisis, as I had yesterday, is also um, a health crisis. So there is really a link in terms of detective um, tropical diseases and climate change. There is a lot of... Um, with the climate change, uh, with the rains, the increase in the rainfall, uh, increase in the temperatures, and therefore the vectors that transmit the diseases and the mosquitoes, the sunflies, uh, will thrive more and therefore increase uh, these diseases, infectious diseases as well as uh, the uh, neglected diseases. Uh, we've, ha- we've seen a lot of um, cholera outbreaks, a lot of... Uh, Infectious disease outbreaks, like the one we work in, for like example, glycerolishmanasis, uh, uh, and so these are all linked uh, to health. Um, and the unfortunate thing is that it's affecting uh, the the poorest of the poor. Um, our patients that have neglected diseases also have the impact of this um, climate uh, change as well. 
So, so far, we've only heard about this fund and that and that's specifically for these neglected tropical diseases. Would you like more money to be set aside by, for example, developed countries to help support developing countries in battling the repercussions ultimately of these uh, of this glowing this growing health crisis? Um, yes, um, I think to be good to have more money. Uh, set aside for the neglected uh, tropical diseases. And I know that um, uh, the presidency of uh, COP28 is uh, uh, putting a lot of money, Gil, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as well. And so other donors as well uh, uh, pledged a lot of money yesterday, as you said, $777 million. And so we need to have more funding but uh, I think that we also saw um, uh, low middle income countries also pledge some money yesterday. Uh, I think uh, the government of Tanzania, the president, uh, pledged uh, $3 million uh, in, in five years. So I think that we need to, to pledge together the developed countries and also the low middle income countries can put in what they can. Uh, because everything counts. We need every every money to be able to fight these diseases. How do you expect the the money to be spent? It, you know, will it be in R and D and you know in research and development of of new medicines, or will it literally just be on practical things like buying more mosquito nets for communities? Uh, there's no one um, no one um, idea fits all. So I, I, I think that the best, the most important thing is um, really to research and innovation. If we have to reach the last mile, we have to uh, do research and innovate uh, and come up with new tools. For example, in diagnostics, uh, treatment, vaccines, we need new tools to, to reach that last mile. Um, and so that's important. We need to put money there. We um, also need to put money into control uh, activities. We need to put money into elimination. Uh, if, according to the World Health Organization, uh, you know, by 2030, some of these uh, diseases should be eliminated. But we will need we need to put money aside for that as well. Have there been some positive stories? I, I read recently in the newspaper about uh, a new type of um, mosquito that is being bred that actually doesn't spread dengue, for example, that, that's become very uh, popular. They've been releasing them in Australia and, and that that is reducing the, the, the transmission of dengue. Exactly. That's what the, uh, innovation I'm talking about. We have to innovate. So that's one of the inno- innovative uh, ways to reduce uh, malaria. But I am in the field of uh, neglected uh, neglected diseases, and there we need to um, really develop new tools. We need to develop drugs that are able to reach the last mile. I can give you an example. We've been working uh, in Africa in the uh, sleeping sickness, for example, and so many years ago, the you know there were acidic compounds that were being used to treat um, sleeping sickness. And over time, my institution plus partners have been able to uh, develop oral treatments that have, have changed the whole dynamic. And now we can actually see in the, you know, in, far in terms of this disease 
actually being eliminated because we've innovated and come up with uh, a single treatment and uh, that will, will probably reach the last mile. So I think innovation is key. Um, yeah. Dr. Monique Wasuna, I'm so sorry. It, I've got to go to the news now. I could talk to you for, for hours. You're, you're literally one of the most eminent experts on the subject of uh, neglected tropical diseases. I'm so sorry. We tried to fit our conversation with you into a very small uh, slot, but I really appreciate your time on our program this morning. Thank you very much indeed. That is Dr. Monique Wasuna, Director of the Africa Regional Office for Drugs of for Neglected Diseases Initiative. Uh, really inspiring to hear there of the progress being made and of course that fund that has just uh, been announced from Expo City Dubai this is the agenda on Dubai I 103.8 live at COP28 the world's largest climate conference yes welcome back to the program this is the agenda live on Dubai I 103.8 I hope you're having a fantastic long weekend we are bringing you all the latest breaking news from the climate talks here at Expo City but We've also got one other eye on all the other top stories making headlines. And we're going to focus now on India because 41 workers who were trapped underground for 17 days are getting used to life above ground again. And they owe their freedom in huge part thanks to the rescue lead, Professor Arnold Dix, who has the fantastic job title of President of International Tunnelling and Underground Space Association. Now, producer Jennifer Crichton sat down with him over the weekend and he explained why he declared very publicly and very early in the operation that all the men would indeed go home safely. I think in the West we call that a stretch target. But (laughs) look, I just had a really good feeling about it. And I know that's very not professorly of me to say, but I just had a feeling, like a really good feeling, and that if we could just focus, we could do this. And so that's why I famously said from the beginning, 41 people out safe, no one injured in the process. And as for timing, they'll be home for Christmas, which was pretty I mean, in retrospect, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I really did say that publicly. And I am the president of a UN NGO. And, you know, it's a pretty bold thing to say, but I really believed it was true. And it turned out it was. Now, they were trapped there for 18 days. And and part of what led to there being such a successful outcome was that during that time, you were able to get food, medicines, water to them. How yep. did you get that set up? What was the process of that? Well, interesting process, some of it quite random. So first we have this huge avalanche, you know, give or take a million tonnes of mountain falls in. And the first amazing thing that happens is no one gets hurt. Now, usually at that point, everyone's dead. So that's why I thought we were in with a shot. And to the side of the tunnel, there was an air compressor pipe to provide compressed air for tools and things. And somehow, amazingly, that didn't get crushed. So we were able to convert that existing compressed air pipe into a supply line for air and um, sort of rations, just dry rations and some medicines and things, and just basically pump it through with air. And then they tried to get through with augers, but that was all failing. Then I arrived and had a look at the situation and still felt that we were going to be able to do this and had this real belief that, no, we're going to get all these men out and no one's going to get hurt. But at that stage, we didn't really know how. 
But I figured we had so many great people, like the Indian engineers are awesome and they're particularly good at this Himalayan uh, geology. And we had the army and we had the emergency services from the federal agents and the state agencies. We had, like, it was everyone was there. So it was like, like a big party plan, okay? We've got all the resources of the world. More importantly, we've got the goodwill of everybody. I said, and I believed, if we could just concentrate on the outcome we want, which is everybody out, no one hurt, then we could do it. Against the odds, like I, in all my life, uh, my career of in investigations and disaster response, normally there's no survivors. So this is this is a completely off the chart outcome. And I'm so excited and happy and pleased and a whole lot of emotions there aren't even English words for, for the outcome. And having spent your career, as you say, quite often seeing very upsetting outcomes, what was it like that moment when you reach 42 men and say, you can go home now? I was sitting behind the families as they were all coming out and I was busy trying to count because my promise was that they'd all come out. And for me, until everyone was out, the mission wasn't complete. And the families, their reaction was interesting because as the people were coming out, they were almost silent. Everyone else was cheering, but the families were just just looking. And it was almost like they were looking at the living dead because I don't think that they really believed they were being told the truth, although there was vision. We did get vision a bit later showing them alive. And then once they were all out, and I went and checked to make sure no one had got hurt, then I was just so content, really, like we did it and it was everybody did it. It wasn't like, it wasn't me that did it and it wasn't any one particular person that did it. This this group of really nice people cooperating. So, you know, there's the, the army sitting at the same table as the, the local ambulance service sitting next to some engineers sitting next to me. I don't even speak Hindi. And we're all problem solving. And that, to me, is a scenario that the whole world can learn by, that good people mm-hmm. wanting to do something really nice, we can do it. Even if it seems impossible, we can do it. And we did do it. And do you think that's your key takeaway from this? I know there's going to be an investigation into how that landslide happened, how we ended up where we did, but... Do you think that that kind of cooperation is the thing that you will carry with you away from this operation? Absolutely. There's an element of humility in what we do. And I think the lesson is that in the end, our kids are our kids and we we should watch out for them. And that's really what I was doing here. I mean, these were young men, the tunnelers. They come in just to work. They're just supporting their families. They're just hardworking, really nice people. And you're in the goal. And they're all around you there. And the message is good people can achieve the impossible when we work together to do nice things. Professor Arnold Dix there, president of the International Tunnelling and Underground Space Association, in conversation with producer Jennifer Crichton. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. From Expo City, Dubai. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at COP28. The world's largest climate conference. 
Hello there. Welcome back to COP28. Welcome back to Expo City. We are broadcasting to you live today, despite it being a day off for many of us. I hope you're having a good one, getting a bit of sunshine, a bit of R&R, maybe uh, if you are so inclined, catching up on some of that Christmas shopping. But down here at COP28, it is fair to say that the stakes are high as are emotions. COP28 on track to be the largest climate summit ever staged. More than 80,000 people have registered to attend the talks, and I think I probably have bumped into about 3,000 of them when I was trying to get in this morning. Security took a lot longer than I expected, not because they weren't efficient, but just because of the sheer number of people who are here. Uh, That is, um, that 80,000 number, by the way, a significant increase on COP27, which was attended by about 50,000. Now, representation is a key aim of this year's conference, and our roving reporter Sana Katari is on the ground in the green zone right now, where we've actually seen activists making their voices heard this morning. Now, let me just make through sure that I've got this through to the studio. We're going to go through to Sana now. Let's see if this is going to work. Here we go. Brand new studio. Always a bit of a fudge getting used to it, but it sounds like I have Sana on the line now. Hello. How are you? Hello. Hello yes, there. Good, Georgia. How are you? Very well <laughs> indeed. Thank you. Busy, busy. It's uh, There's a real sense of momentum, yes. isn't there, on site? Exactly. It's still, I mean, it's still going from the weekend. It's been really crazy, I think, over the weekend, but it's still going. I think uh, that there being a holiday today here means that obviously things are a little bit more packed too. And I understand that you have seen a fair amount of activists uh, making their voices heard this morning. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So I've been at the Voices for Action Hub this morning, which is the space that's available for climate uh, activists to assemble peacefully and to make their voices heard, especially when it comes to the topic of climate action, obviously. Um, So one topic that's particularly important here at COP28 is the Loss and Damages Fund, which is uh, set to push for the rescue and uh, rehabilitation of developing countries that are particularly vulnerable to uh, the effects of climate change. And the people here at the Hub are calling for even bigger contributions to the fund. So this is what one of the activists had to say. When we have heard today that people of the Global South need billions and trillions to cope with the crisis that they have caused. And we see today that all of us here want them to fill the fund now. Billions, not millions, fill the fund now. Billions, not millions, fill the fund now. Well, interesting stuff and not something you normally see in the UAE. So always fun to hear uh, those protesters taking to the streets, uh, at least of COP28. Uh, what else are you expecting to see today, Sana, on your, on your roaming around the green zone? Exactly. So, I mean, like you said, it's not normal to see that, but it's also because of this massive fund, this landmark fund that's been set up on the first day of COP28. And it's not just this, just this one fund that's been pledged to. I mean, yesterday, I remember collective pledges were reaching about 777 million on the Reaching Last Mile Forum, which is for uh, neglected tropical diseases. Uh, And there's been so many other pledges to incredible funds as well. And uh, I was in a press conference this morning, too, and I heard Her Excellency Mia Motley, 
Prime Minister of Barbados say that, yes, while the pledges to these funds are great, the bigger question is how we're going to be using them and executing them worthwhile, uh, sorry, in worthwhile projects on the ground. So this is what she said. I don't think I ha- actually have that oh. clip, uh, and, oh, and, but okay. we, will, we will come to that uh, shortly. Uh, in fact, maybe it's just been dropped in. Let's have a look and see if it's just been dropped in. I haven't found it yet. No worries. Well, Sana, back. Uh, lovely to have you join us on the line. We will catch up with you a bit later on. And thank you very much indeed for your time. Oh, we do have that clip. Have a listen to it now. And if we're <laughs> this close to the tipping point, then we need to act with urgency. Why? Because regrettably the prospect of certain countries and regions becoming uninsurable and uninvestable is actually ahead of us. And that is the tipping point that we want to avoid. Sana Katari there reporting to us live out and about at COP28. She will be keeping us up to date with all of the proceedings throughout the day. But for now, let us turn our attention back to that contentious topic of climate finance because so far we've had pledges totaling about 500 million dollars for that newly established loss and damage fund but there is concern as you just heard from those protesters actually that the sums are just too small in fact the Ghanaian special envoy Henry Kwabane Kofofu suggested that the amount offered so far is woefully inadequate we're talking about billions of dollars of loss and damage out there he said uh, meanwhile uh, the US has pledged 17. $5 million, which actually, when you think about it from the United States, does sound like quite a small number, while the EU number states have collectively committed $145 million. Germany has separately pledged $100 million, as has the UAE. Speaking here at COP28, Pakistan's Prime Minister Anwar ul-Haq Kakar told CNN's Becky Anderson he'd like to see more wealthy nations contributing and contributing generously. Everyone knows who have been contributors in the last one century. So it is more of a question of an an, an honest conversation rather than passing judgments on countries and economies. So so I think so. If a sense of responsibility comes from wealthy nations themselves, that uh, would be more a welcome start. He also suggested that last year's flooding in Pakistan had shown officials in his country just how urgent the need for real action had to beca- had become and how unfairly the impacts of climate change were likely to hit. The reality check was there and uh, we knew at that moment that climate change is no more a fashionable conversation point. It, it has hit us at home and it had hit us hard. At the same time, we did realize that we are not the one who are primarily responsible for contributing and bringing this climate disaster. Meanwhile, staying with that issue of climate financing, the U.S. President Joe Biden has recently hailed the UAE's pledge to deliver $30 billion to a major global drive to address the crisis. Now, this money is actually separate to all of the other funds, and it is quite tricky to keep track of all these different sort of commitments. But this specific money will go towards a new private investment vehicle. It's called Altera. And the idea is that it's hoping to raise $250 billion globally in the next six years to create a fairer climate finance system. Now, this is a complaint from many of the developing countries around the world that they want to build, for example, solar parks. They want to build maybe 
dams, hydroelectric dams. But the reality is, is that they just can't get funding for it because the systems aren't in place for risky projects in developing countries. You just can't get that money. Now, this fund, the Altera, will be geared towards solving that problem. And it is something that many activists on site this week are calling for, given the disproportionate impact that the climate crisis is having in the global south. Now, it's an argument that's being made ever more vociferously as this uh, conference continues. In fact, the granddaughter of Nelson Mandela told the BBC's Laura Koonsberg that rich nations were currently carrying out what she called a type of climate apartheid. Speaking here in Dubai, Nidalika Mandela insisted the emotive terminology was accurate. I call it climate apartheid because that has been exported to a global stage where the global north is using their economic and legal power to subjugate poor nations who are at the brunt of the effects of climate change. Africa and the global south has the smallest percentage of carbon emissions. That's why I call it a climate apartheid. Really interesting to hear her words there. Okay, so let's discuss where the attendees here, the delegates here, the countries here are in agreement. Well, global leaders have so far endorsed a UAE declaration on food and climate action. They've included there a vow to cut emissions from farming. Uh, Quite a major step there because, of course, a third of the world's greenhouse gas footprint comes from agriculture. There's also been a series of other really important announcements over the weekend. For example, 50 oil and gas companies who together represent more than 40% of global oil production made pledges on methane and carbon dioxide on Saturday. That was a big move. Normally, the oil and gas companies have not really been represented at COP28. They are this year, uh, and that there's been a certain amount of, you know, disputes and arguments about that, but they are here and they have made that commitment. Meanwhile, around 116 countries have committed to triple renewable energy capacity worldwide by 2030. Now, that is a really important statement um, because people are suggesting, activists are suggesting that that could precede a big commitment at the end of this week on the amount of emissions uh, that that countries are going to agree to cut over the next few years. So there's a certain amount of sort of hints and teases of potential agreements in the future. Meanwhile, more than a billion dollars in grant funding for methane reduction was confirmed. That wasn't just from countries, but also philanthropists and industry have got involved in that one. But some activists suggest that... um, that basically the focus has been too much on renewable energy and the role that carbon capture can play and not enough on the emphasis of actually getting rid of fossil fuels, oil and gas. Uh, but uh, I mean, then there's the other argument, which comes from the uh, the Exxon team, the bank, the, ba- the, the oil and gas companies. Uh, for example, Darren Woods, the chief executive of Exxon Mobil, told the FT that discussions are putting too much emphasis on getting rid of those fossil fuels, oil and gas, and not enough on dealing with the emissions associated with them. He says, realistically, we are going to be needing these fossil fuels at some stage in the future. So we should be talking about how we're going to deal with them. Now, safe to say, not everyone agrees. This is scientist Johan Rockstrom from the Potsdam Institute. Even if we succeed, we will have a rough ride. We've had off the chart records on surface temperatures in the ocean, 
ice melt on Greenland, ice mass lost on, on Antarctica. So, you know, we have to get prepared. So a lot going on today, as you've just heard. Lots of funds, lots of pledges, lots of promises, lots of protests, and there will be more of the same today. Uh, the talks are going to focus on gender equality today, as well as the issues of health and energy transition. They're also... Uh, there are also lots of talks going on about the ways in which the climate crisis is disproportionately affecting women and children. From Expo City Dubai, this is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at COP28, the world's largest climate conference. Hello there and welcome back to The Agenda. Yep, you're listening here live to Dubai Eye 103.8. And we are coming to you live from COP28. We're right in the middle of the conference here at Expo City. But let's take a look now at a local story because Dubai is launching one of the world's largest marine reef developments. Yep, the Dubai Reef will span 600 square kilometres of water and it has an aim to increase fish stocks, to support sustainable fishing and also to contribute to boosting food security. Have a listen to the sort of launch video that came out over the weekend. The city will create over 400,000 cubic meters of reefs through the implementation of more than 20,000 reef modules. The project aims for an eightfold rise in fish and biomass population within the next 10 years. It'll catalyze 7 million tons of carbon capture per annum, equal to 1.5 million cars. Yeah, so the project's set to start in Jan next year and be completed by 2028. But what is really interesting is that it's not the only UAE-based project focusing on reef restoration and development because the port's operator, DP World, is also funding a company called Coral Vita and they grow these uh, special sort of climate-resilient corals and they've worked out a way of doing it 50 times faster than in nature. Now, Coral Vita won one of the first Earthshot Prizes. That's a global environmental award organised by Britain's Prince William. And a little earlier, I caught up with their chief reef officer, Sam Teicher. He's here on site at COP28, and he told me why coral reefs are so important. The challenge that we're addressing is that reefs are dying. We've lost half of the world's coral reefs since the 1970s. Over 90% are projected to die by 2050, which is why events like COP are so important, because we need to stop killing reefs. But just like we can grow trees for reforestation, we can grow corals for reef restoration. What we're bringing that's a bit different is we're doing this as a business. We're looking at how through tourism and coastal protection, fisheries, reefs are incredibly valuable. So how can we get people in places like this business and philanthropy forum to look at ecosystems as almost uh, an asset that we need to fund to protect? And so part of that vision, I think, contributed to us winning the Earthshot Prize back in 2021, and it's been an incredible ride since. We hear a lot about sustainability prizes. In fact, we have one over here. It's called the Zayed Sustainability Prize, and they get a lot of headlines. Realistically, how much has it helped you and your campaigning to have won that million pounds? You know, is it literally pivoting for you? It really has been an incredible opportunity, and the prize money, phenomenal definitely not complaining about that and we've really put it to good work but what's really been phenomenal about the Earthshot Prize is it's a community and it's a 10-year commitment and there's actually at this event some friends who are fellow finalists and winners so to 
become friends with, to learn from the other entrepreneurs and solutionists, to have Prince William and their whole team mobilizing partners in philanthropy, nonprofits, governments on our behalf. They've made introductions to places we might want to set up coral farms. We are launching a new facility here in Dubai in partnership with Dubai Ports World, who is a founding partner of the Earthshot Prize. Even had the opportunity to take Prince William and Princess Kate to plant corals, which not only was an incredible experience, but for them to use their platform to highlight not only Coral Vita and our work, but the issue of coral reefs, the fact that they're dying, the fact that we need to, that's huge. So it really is much, much more than a prize. And I'm so grateful to be a part of the Earthshot community. So how have you been building this program here in the Middle East? You mentioned here in Dubai. Are you also looking further afield in the GCC? We are, yes. Yeah. So our first farm launched in Freeport, Grand Bahama in 2018. Everything from Cat 5 hurricanes to COVID got thrown our way, but not only do coral reefs need to be resilient, but we definitely showed the resilience that's needed to tackle some of these big problems and are now in a position where we're launching farms in new countries in Dubai. We also recently won a bid from the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia to help run the first phase of their new coral farm that's being created in Neom. Uh, we're looking at really every country that has coral reefs around the world, how we can launch farms, license technology, collaborate with other restoration practitioners, all with this mission towards scaling restoration to keep these amazing ecosystems alive for future generations. And with the focus growing in the Middle East, it's very exciting to see not only the incredible reefs here in the Arabian Gulf and in the Red Sea, but the funding, the thought leadership, and the action that's being mobilized to take care of these ecosystems and that Coral Vita gets to be a part of it. Really interesting to hear there from Sam Teicher. Uh, he is the Chief Reef Officer for Coral Vita. You are listening here uh, to the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8, coming to you live from COP28, right in the middle of the conference here at Expo City. From Expo City Dubai, this is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at COP28, the world's largest climate conference. Hello there, welcome back to The Agenda, live here on Dubai Eye 103.8 from COP28. We are here right in the middle of the conference at Expo City. And it's fair to say that later this week, climate education is set to come under the spotlight with a summit that is being spearheaded right here by the UAE. It's called the Rewired Summit. It brings together 200 heads of state and Along with international NGOs, then you've got the climate actors, you've got the CEOs, business people, you've got teachers, children and indigenous leaders all coming together in one place to drive concrete action towards education transformation. But what will that concrete action look like? And and what are the skills that children actually need to be able to participate in this future climate economy? I know that's something that I want to know for my own kids, whether I should, you know, what I should be getting them to focus on, but it's even more important for children in the developing global south. Now, to tell me more about the Rewired Summit, I'm joined now on the line by His Excellency, Dr. Tarek Al-Gurg. He's the Chief He's the Chief Executive Officer and Vice Chairman of Dubai Cares, which is the organization that is leading this initiative. Your Excellency, thank you so much for joining me on the agenda this morning. Tell me, what is it that needs to change in our education systems? What is it that children need to learn so that they can participate in this future climate economy that hopefully we're building right here at COP28? 
First of all, we're, um, we're not getting 200 uh, heads of state, as you said. We're getting 200 speakers, out of which we have a few of them as heads of state and, and quite a good chunk of them as ministers. So it's 200 speakers and not heads of state. Um, look, Georgia, um, every country has a dream. Every country has uh, an ambition to reach towards uh, um, their uh, economic goals. And to, to hit on these milestones to reach to your uh, economic goal, you have to set a vision. And that vision would, would definitely entail what the future jobs would be. You have to, as a minister of economy, speak to the private sector in your country and see what is their need, what do they want for their future products. And these products would need certain jobs and skills. So once each country knows their vision on what they want to do in the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years, that's the vision of the country. Economy will be uh, uh, central to that vision and to that vision of they, well, what they want, it has to be identified what is the future human being skills should look like to cater to the needs of that job, of that product for the private sector. As we know, 75% um, of, uh, um, of jobs in countries on average are from the private sector. The government's job is to cater to the needs of the private sector. So employees in the government sector goes up based on the growth of the private sector. So what do we need today, if that's your question? We have to always go back to what the vision of the country is. For instance, if the UAE now is, is, is going to space, as you know, and we've been working on space for the last few years, and we sent a probe to Mars, and uh, we sent another mission to, to the moon. So space is becoming part of our vision. So that's one. Uh, climate and environment and agriculture is becoming also big uh, into the UAE's vision. So in order for the UAE to excel into this uh, uh, space, I mean, the, this sphere, into the future, we have to instill the core competencies and the subjects into, uh, into, into our children, but also into our curricula in order for us to make them love the subject, get delved into the subject. So, so once they finish schooling, then what's going to happen is they have to graduate. So we have to have actual subjects into our universities into these uh, um, 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 into space into uh, um, um, uh, uh, agriculture and environment and once those subjects are done in universities as curricula then we can graduate into these as as, as core uh, subjects and then we can have jobs into this and then we can create evolution into these um, um, spheres or spaces that's what we need. We need to understand what's the vision of the country, where the economy is leading, understand what kind of jobs we need in the future, and instill those as core competencies into our children through a newly reformed, transformed uh, curricula and an education system, so then they become the superhuman beings of the future as youth. So it's about creating this workforce for the future. Tell me who is on board at this Rewired Summit. Are you expecting, for example, participants to make pledges for funding? You know, what will the concrete action out of this Rewired Summit look like? Look, Georgia, we've been in the sector for 16 years and, and, and we are leading uh, uh, 
many things at the sector with the United Nations, with the UN Secretary General, with the Deputy UN Secretary General, um, um, with UNICEF, uh, with the UN Special Envoy for Global Education, uh, the Right Honourable Gordon Brown, and 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 many other organisations and multilaterals and 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 and, and even some governments as well. And um, what we need to do now and today is 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 we need unity. The sector, the education sector, lacks unity, and that has created many discrepancies in the sector in terms of achieving our goals. It created many silos. Everyone is working by themselves according to their agendas and mandates rather than merging these agendas and mandates together. And we have seen this for the last 16 years. And we sit on many UN boards, many multilateral boards, such as the World Economic Forum, the OECD, the World Bank uh, as well. And we fund them all. And what we can do, because we are connected with all of them, and because we are a non-government organization, and because we are accredited by the UN as a civil society, and because we are non-UN, we see ourselves that we are the only organization which can bring them all together, glue them into a mechanism that will make this work. And that is the accelerator that I have announced around three days ago or two days ago at, uh, at the COP28 that we're launching this. And, uh, and I cannot partner with one agency to do it. So we teamed up with the Aga Khan Foundation and we're getting two non-government and two UN entities, uh, sorry, two non-government and two non-UN entities to team up, two foundations to team up to change the status quo. We're going to change the world. We selected 10 countries we're going to pilot. The Aga Khan Foundation works in these countries. They work in many other countries as well, but they work in these countries closely and these countries agreed that they will be the pilot for that change. And the population of these 10 countries is 2.1 billion people. And we're going to transform the lives of those. And we're going to create a framework on their new education system in the next two to three years. So when we reach 2025, that will be the five-year countdown to 2030 to look at what goals there will be. At least by 2025, we have transformed uh, 10 countries. And hopefully by 23 uh, to uh, 2030, we will have... 10 or 15 more, and if we can get 25 to 35 countries by 2030, you're talking about 15 to 20% of developing countries or countries have transportation systems. And how will we do that? We, as Dubai Cares, created our own global education transformation framework. It's a five-year effort that we have put no consultants, nothing. It's all in-house. It's approved by the UN. It's in the portal of the UN. And we're going to use that framework to accelerate education transformation along with the Aga Khan Foundation. Your Excellency, it's always a pleasure to have you on the agenda. Thank you so much for outlining uh, both of those plans for me. You've just been listening to the voice of His Excellency Dr. Tarek Al Gurg, CEO and Vice Chairman of Dubai Cares. From Expo City Dubai, this is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Live at COP28, the world's largest climate conference. Hello there. Yes, welcome back to The Agenda. We are live today on 
uh, your National Day long weekend day off. But we are uh, working here down at COP28. Uh, we are enjoying the atmosphere at Expo City. Uh, fair to say that as I was arriving, I was not alone. I think just in my sort of batch of delegates coming into the Blue Zone, there must have been about a thousand people. Do, uh, if you don't believe me, check out the photographs. We put them up on our socials at Dubai Eye 1038FM. A lot going on down here. Most of the world leaders have actually now left. And this is the point at which things get down to the nitty gritty. This is where groups of delegates uh, behind closed doors are discussing possible consensus negotiations. The hope is that over the next week, everyone in the world, quite literally delegates from around the world, will come together to make some sort of agreement or indeed series of agreements that will lead to a dramatic reduction of carbon uh, in our atmosphere ultimately and the and the reduction of the production of of, of carbon uh, to use a lot of shon words but yet yeah, certainly a sense of momentum here certainly a sense of a lot going on so many pledges and promises made over the weekend a huge amount of money uh, added to various different funds we will be getting into that in a little bit more detail at 11 o'clock uh, but it's fair to say that it has also been a fairly action-packed weekend from a sporting perspective. Uh, let's turn our attention to that now because our editor, Chris McCarty, has sent over his report. Good morning, Georgia. Happy Monday. My sincere apologies again for the state of my voice. That's what two days at the Emirates Dubai Sevens will do. I was on here for seven hours on Saturday, it is a marathon, not a sprint. That's the saying I tend to trot out often at the Emirates Dubai Sevens. But I'm up and about this morning, looking forward to my day off. And um, well, let's start with the rugby. It's congratulations to both South Africa men's and Australia women's because they were the two victors at last night at a jam-packed Sevens stadium. No stopping at South Africa, a fifth successive Emirates Dubai Sevens success, a seventh in the last eight years. They really are the dominant force are the Blitzbocker. They beat Argentina in the final and as for the women's final that was played just an hour or so before congratulations to the Aussies ending New Zealand's 41, yes, 41 game unbeaten run. A fantastic performance and yes, as I say, Australia and South Africa, the two toasts of the women's and men's game respectively this morning. I want to just say a massive well done to all of the teams involved over the last three days, I've got to say, and I said this on yesterday's broadcast, Saturday is the busiest I have seen the Sevens in a long time. Just want to doff my cap to Matthew Tate, the tournament director, and all of his team, Matt Byrne, to Lucy Speed, and to all of those who helped put our broadcast together over the last couple of days. It was a real treat. And of course, roll on 2024. As for the other sport this weekend, well, the Premier League threw up another classic Last night it finished Manchester City 3, Tottenham 3, Alaska's equaliser from the Swede Dejan Kuzalevsky saw Spurs come away from the Etihad Stadium with a point. What it does all mean is that Arsenal clear at the top of the table. Arsenal, of course, victorious this weekend, a 2-1 win for them at the Emirates against Wolves. No such luck for Manchester United, their woes continue after their draw with Galatasaray midweek. They went to St James's Park late on Saturday night and they came a cropper. Anthony Gordon with a goal 10 minutes into the second half. United though, that doesn't tell half the story. Manchester United that is, absolutely 
absolutely woeful. Uh, woeful, sorry, woeful. That's what I'm talking right now. Eric Ten Hag, the knives once again being sharpened for the Dutchman. He needs an upturn of form consistently over the course of what is a busy, busy month. And finally, it is congratulations to Scotty Scheffler, the world number one golfer. He was victorious in the Hero uh, Golf Challenge down in the Bahamas. Of course, that's Tiger Woods events, a 20-man field. Scotty Scheffler winning on 20 under par. Tiger Woods making his long-awaited comeback for the first time since the Masters back in April. He finished 18th in a 20-man field. So I guess you bang up to date with some of the big stories this past weekend, Georgia. I'm off to lie down once again. It's been a long old weekend. I'm going to enjoy my day off, rest up the voice, and I'll be back with you off script 5pm tomorrow with myself and Robbie Greenfield. Until then, ta-da. Chris McCarty there. You can just about still hear him. No, his voice is actually bearing up surprisingly well, uh, considering the magnificence of that Rugby Sevens weekend. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.